Hey there, fellow climate advocate. The Citizens Climate June Conference is back. Yes, in person, in D.C. I won't be there, and you're going to find out why as you listen to the show, but I'd love it if you would go. It's going to be amazing speakers, excellent time to kind of regroup and get together with folks, June 11th through 13th, 2022. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org for more information about the June Conference. I'm your host, Peter Santoscano. Welcome to Episode 71 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, April 29th, 2022. In the Art House, Krista Heiser is back for another installment of the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club. Krista didn't like the main character in Ian McEwan's 2010 novel, Solar. But then she recently reread it, and this time, well, she saw herself in it. We also have a good news story about yet another group of climate advocates getting their local government on board to pursue climate solutions. But first, I invite you to be a fly on the wall during a very raucous and informative lunch. Over the past year, I've been living in South Africa with my husband, Glenn. Glenn is originally from here, so it was easy for me to connect with his family and friends through what is called a brai. This is the classic South African cookout get-together. I love everything about these brais. Well, except maybe one thing. You see, they serve a lot of meat. A lot. I tend to lean into a vegetarian and vegan diet. And of course they have salads and veggies, but at a normal braai, it's not uncommon for you to get beef sausages, lamb chops, and some sort of game meat like impala, ostrich, or kudu. I think I've had more meat in one year than I've had for the past 25 years. Now what is most delicious though at a braai is the conversation. At a recent braai, my husband Glenn and I sat around the table with perhaps the funniest veterinarians in South Africa. Four veterinarians. In fact, they are two couples. My name's Roy and I'm a veterinarian. Christine and I'm a veterinarian but non-practicing. Ashley, probably not going to contribute much. <laughs> also was a veterinarian, not so much anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm Adrian and I'm an academic and a wildlife veterinarian. Now, if you're anything like me, I can't help but talk about climate change, right? I'm curious, what do people think and feel about the issue? How does it affect their lives? So with four veterinarians at the same table, I just couldn't help myself. Lucky for me, amidst all the food and drink, Christine, Roy, Adrian, and Ashley had a lot to share. They talked about pets and extreme heat, not just in South Africa, but also in Europe and the USA. We also talked about fleas and ticks, including the American tick that strikes fear in the hearts of South Africans. Adrian also shared some of his research about the adorable and very loud bush baby. It's a rare nocturnal primate that's feeling the stress of climate change. Join me for a beautiful summer day braai on the back stoop of Roy and Christine's home. And don't worry, if you're not a meat eater or a wine drinker, Imagine we're eating and drinking all of your favorites.
So we're sitting around having some nice meal and wine. And I did a show some years ago about the impacts of climate change on pets. And it was with a veterinarian who's a rural veterinarian. So she did both large animals and small animals pets. What is the impact that you're seeing on, on pets and on animals in South Africa with climate change? Or something that plays a large role in South Africa in particular is the choice of pet that people go for. With the that being a, a major factor in the animal's adaptation to the specific climate that we have here in South Africa. For example, popular pets include huskies and many short-nosed breeds including bulldogs, French bulldogs, pugs, Pekingese, you know, the dogs with the Boston, Terrier. Boston Terriers, all the short-faced breeds, they, people find them incredibly cute and they want to they want to own them so siberian husky i mean that it just tells you that they're yeah. like, they come from places which are not traditionally south african hot dry heat the, the choice of breed is limited if you're going to go for something that occurred naturally in our environment exactly and in terms of how houses are designed in south africa air conditioning is it's relatively uncommon some houses have them the average home in South Africa is not air-conditioned, so it relies on ambient temperature management. You use fans, you use heaters, you use, you know, it's mostly open doors and closed doors and open windows and closed windows, depending on what the outside temperature is. We don't have double glazing. Well, and um, a lot of animals live outside. And That's a lot of, what I and a lot of, yeah. uh, Unlike Europe, where, um, where many animals live Yeah, I mean, I mean, the States too, where most animals, they live with the family indoors. That's not really... The culture commonly in South Africa, mostly the animals spend much more time outside and many people don't allow their pets into the house. Well, and they're also, in a way, service animals and providing protection. Often, yeah. Security, yes, yeah. Yes. Security. So they, yeah. They, are, they need to be outside yeah. in order to provide... So far more dogs will be living in outside kennels. And so they're much more susceptible to climate because they're not living in a climate-controlled environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it sounds like particularly extreme heat is an yes. issue yeah. for the animals. So when interestingly, so I want to interrupt you because actually the interesting thing about that is that in South Africa, one of the big problems is that we are also not protected against cold because we only do cold for two months, two months yeah. of the year, and then it's not even necessarily that cold. But if you have a really bad cold snap, it can get pretty cold. And you and, don't have central heating, and we don't have central heating, and the dogs and the dogs are outside. The only way that that animal can survive the heat is by not being active. Its behavior is going to change yeah. in response to the overwhelming heat. I mean, that's normal. That's the way they, they adapted. But now the problem comes in when that animal never gets to be active. I mean, through several months of summer that we would, you know, mm -hmm. we have extended long, fairly long warm space. periods of the year. Well, nine months at least. Yeah. Nine, nine months, months of the year are relatively warm or could have warm, very warm spells. That's really a problem because now they, they don't actually get to exhibit their normal behavior during that, that period of time. They might be okay. They're, they're going to survive. They're not going to demonstrate any signs of heat exertion or so, but they're actually not they, they're not getting the exercise that they need. Then they become obese and they develop all kinds of problems related to inactivity and, and lack of exercise. Mm -hmm. Even though they may not present at the practice for heat exhaustion or anything like that, that doesn't mean that they necessarily aren't impacted mm -hmm. by problems, the change. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about specialized breeds here that are actually mm. largely European. If we you know, talk about the bulldog, mm. um, any of the short-nosed brachycephalic breeds, the Boston Terrier, the pug, the French bulldog, I mean, all of those are fairly cold climate adapted. Well, 
Everything initially is adapted from from the wolf. So the and the wolf itself is is a very much cold Cold adapted uh, animal, which is also a problem even in Europe, where they come from. I mean, it's not that they don't get these problems there too. It just takes a really hot day. It just takes a really hot day there, whereas over here, that's like they're living with that. Every yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a Tuesday. Yeah. So, but also think about things like body shape. You know, the the bulldog is barrel shaped and and, and close and, to the ground. And, yes, and and so if you think about how how much it takes for the the temperature to move from the core of the animal out to the skin, which is you know one of the few places that it has to lose some of the heat. It's a long way. You know, any way you look at it, the radius from the center to the outside, it's a long way to go. Whereas if you look at, for example, the painted dog, it's a, it's a slim thing. It's skinny. The, the distance from the center of the dog to the nearest outside surface is a lot shorter. So if you're talking about European adapted breeds and African adapted breeds, we have our own Afrikaners breed, which is not a specific breed in itself. The breeds, short-coated. yeah, a short-coated, slim. slim line, you know, they're narrow dogs, uh, long legs. Oval, oval chests. Yeah. Long a, noses. A, a bright oval if European breeds were brought in, maybe more, maybe the Whippet and the yes. Greyhound. Yes, Afghan, yeah, the ones that those well ones, in desert areas. They also have a longer nose, long so they're much more heat adapted. Those breeds anyway, were, were, nose, were so. developed largely in the Middle East. Desert countries. Desert countries mm. For the very same reasons. Long legs, far away from the hot ground. And also, obviously, the hunting dogs, so they want them to have long legs for the sake of hunting. I think that that's something that needs to be looked at ethically by owners in this country, particularly. Mm. People choose their breeds based on what they see on TV that's cute and what they see. And they are not necessarily understanding that what they think is so cute is not going to do so well in our climate. Mm. So I think the encouragement would be to do your research, Mm. understand whether the breed you have fallen in love with is going to survive well in a hot climate like South Africa. And then you have to choose whether you are going to have your dog indoors with you and in a comfortable climate like you like to be in. And if not, then you should probably not be choosing a bulldog or something like that, you know, because you are, you are actually going to be being cruel to that animal. In the United States, in addition to extreme weather conditions, we're also seeing the impact of vector-borne diseases through ticks, in particular, and mosquitoes. In fact, there's a terrifying tick in America that I think would terrify the heart of most South Africans. It is the Lone Star Tick. And if you get bitten by a Lone Star Tick, you get Alpha-Gal Syndrome. And Alpha-Gal Syndrome, if you get it, one of the symptoms is you are allergic to red meat. Oh, that's terrible. There are many South Africans who would have a problem with that. A problem, an existential crisis. (laughs) It might actually be the extension of South Africa. (laughs) So how is that here, like with vector-borne diseases? Mm -hmm. uh, Definitely saying an uptick, ha, 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 ha. (laughs) (laughs) So as veterinarians, what are you seeing both in the wild and with domestic animals, and how are people able to protect their pets from these vector-borne diseases. Okay, as I have some personal experience with this, the one little bit of, of veterinary practice I still do is preparing pets for export to other countries. And so, because we are a subtropical country, we have a lot of tropical-type ve- vector-borne diseases, and many of them are carried by ticks. Part of the pre-export testing for pets going overseas is to 
check that they aren't carrying some of these diseases that are not present in in some of the foreign countries. And we definitely are seeing an increase in some of the, the vector-borne diseases. We have one called elichiasis, which is a blood parasite which is carried by ticks. I'm personally seeing an, a massive increase in this. Positive tests. A positive tests. Far more test dogs are testing positive. I've been doing this for eight years now, and the number of positive tests that I'm seeing now is probably six or seven times more what I was seeing in the first couple of years of my practice. Traditionally, the tick numbers would go down in the very, very cold, cold winters, winters because they, yeah. Yeah, they would die off and the population July. would be reduced. Yeah. But the winters are getting warmer and warmer, and so the ticks yeah. are becoming more and more. They're more and more of them are surviving the winter, so there's a greater starting population at the beginning of in every sun. warm se- mm-hmm. season. And so those ticks then will multiply more. So in, in other words, yeah, frost. And in I mean, frost is a like, classical thing. We just don't get. Yeah. I mean, we haven't seen Proper frost, frost in years. In ages, yeah. Used to be used to. You said oh, frost often. every winter. Always. Oh, oh, on the high fault. The high fault was if you went Frosty. if you went oh, up on a, a if you got up on an early morning on the high fault, more likely than not there would be frost. Yeah, and I remember like anymore. our tap used to like the, the drips used to freeze. freeze. Never seen. Them. We haven't seen Never. in years. So it's definitely changed. But South Africa has indigenous wild dogs and. African wildcats. Yes. And they've evolved for this climate. Yes. And they are outdoors. They don't live, you know, they live yeah. outdoors yes. in the Kruger National Park. Mm. So how do they cool themselves? Most of our species in South Africa have either nocturnal. So first of all, they spend most of their time underground. They're active. Yeah, it's, um, it's not during the day. So they, they're in various different burrows where the temperature uh, fluctuation is actually really very low, so they're not experiencing heat, and then they're nocturnal, so they come out at night when it's you know a lot cooler. And in the case of some of the animals that are active during the day, they have a very short coat, and then they will only be very active during specific times of the day. So they will be hunting early in the morning or late afternoon during times when it's cooler. And many of them actually have very large ears. Most of these carnivores, the only temperature regulation mechanism that they have, they don't sweat through any glands, maybe it a little bit of sweating through the pool that has very minimal effect on, on heat exchange. But the largest percentage of the heat exchange occurs by the respiratory system through the very long nose and also the tongue. So breathing over the tongue, they will be able to get rid of a lot of heat that way. So that's why um, dogs pants so often. Yes. So they have that, but they've adapted the, either, either their behavior or they have physiological, uh, the, the short coat, etc., or the uh, so on, so to, to help them with heat exchange. Um, if you look at our, many of our antelope species in South Africa, they store all of their fat in the abdomen, not in the muscle and not subcutaneously. So they, the they are adapted yeah. in order to get rid of excess heat. Mm-hmm. And as climate change progresses, we're expecting that those extremes, the temperatures will get higher, it will get drier, and that the, those extremes will become worse. Wait, and so then antelopes will have more of a pouch? They store all the fat in the abdomen itself, so yeah. it's not there like it's in insulation. rainbow. So climate change could make them fat. No. <laughs> <laughs> that that exactly. if, I mean, I'd like to use that no, excuse. <laughs> <laughs> this is all climate change. <laughs> no, it's more just about the, the, the rapidity is that, is that that's, that's a process that has taken years, years to, to become that. You're yeah. going through all the various mechanisms of natural selection to get to that point. Now, suddenly you just change all of that. So let's pivot to your question, because I am kind of curious about wild animals. Wild animals, I grew up in Kruger Park, so I'm curious whether, at a certain point, South Africa gets too hot even for the animals that are involved to cope with the heat. I mean, for a number of wild animal species, the, the heat is an issue. 
although they are adapted to to the heat, they're not necessarily adapted to the extremes of the drought that we're likely to experience. Which also changes the habitat. Yes, it has quite a... Also impacting the the plant life and everything else, so that also impacts them, even though it's secondary. Our biggest problem in South Africa is for the very niche climates um, and environments like, for example, the Afromontane forests. And we have several areas in South Africa where we have Afromontane forests. Yes, usually on mountainsides, so small forest patches that are limited to areas where there's a fairly concentration of water, often more shades on the south-facing slopes of of mountains in river valleys. So in KZN, you have quite a few of these mountains, but they are fragmented. They are 100, 200 hectares in size, Mm -hmm. and they are highly fragmented. But we have a lot of species that only survive in those kind of forest areas. And that's where our biggest risk is at the moment. And that's why we, you know, really were quite interested in bush babies, for example, not the smaller variety, the lesser bush baby, but the, the, the greater thick-tailed bush baby, because they're only in large tree areas. So mostly in forest areas or river rind. I mean, in Kruger, you will see them mostly in the river beds where yeah. they are fairly large trees. They survive mainly on fruit and uh, a lot of um, insects, but fruit is an important part of their, of their, their diet. I would imagine the average American has never seen or heard of a bush baby. So if you can give a little description of what a bush baby is. They're related to the lemurs, but they are nocturnal, which makes them very, very interesting. Nocturnal primates, and there are not many of those very around. Small. Very small. But, it, I mean... Uh, Big eyes. They're about the size of a cat. Mm-hmm. The, the thick-tailed bush baby the is about the size of a little bit small cat. cat. The lesser bush baby is only um, a few hundred grams. Yes. About and the lo- size of a gerbil. Very large back legs, large eyes. That's why they're called babies. I mean, because um, bush babies, I mean, it's, the, it's a common name. We call them galagos, which is the most scientific name, but it's because they've got these very, very big, big eyes adapted entirely for nocturnal environment. So they're able to see at night. But what is so fascinating about them and the reason we were interested in studying them is that they have this magnificent diet shift. In summer, when we have a lot of fruit and a lot of insects around, they get this very high energy diet. But then when we have our extended dry seasons in winter, one, it's cold, so you're using up a lot more energy, especially if you're active at night. I mean, you're coming out, mm-hmm. out of a nest and you're going to this very cold environment, cold, yeah. and now you have to move around. There are no insects around, so you don't have that protein fat around to consume. They eat acacia gum. So acacias, uh, a tree variety that we have a, a lot of acacias in South Africa, they have this weeping gum. It's a form of cellulose, which is a very low-protein very low energy. You need certain bacteria in your gut to break this, send those down and make it available in terms of any form of energy. That's what they feed on. They eat, eat on this gum during the extended dry seasons. As soon as you start getting extended droughts, that's what they're going to have to rely on, that, this very, very poor quality food. But they make this big switch. And I suppose that you could, you could imagine that in, in human terms, if you were switching between a paleo diet, paleo keto diet during the wet season, and then you switch vegan. to a vegan diet during the dry season. Every year they shift between one and the other, depending on the amount of rain that, that we experience. But they're going from one extreme and their gut bacteria has to do this complete switch between mm. it. 
those animals are particularly vulnerable. If that dry season extends a bit too long, you're going to see mortalities in their offspring. Um, they won't survive. These they are breed, always examples. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I Sorry, mean these these are, are animals where you have a single parent. The parents, I mean, you only have the female looking after the often twins, sometimes triplets. I mean, but most often twins. Mm. And these twins, in nine months mm. after they're born, they have reached three quarters of their adult size, and that's purely. On the milk that you're providing yeah. for them. I mean, gonna, if you don't make it through, there's no way you're going to produce a new set the next yeah. year. You know, you're done for. So and, and then the breeding rates. Drop. So you any change in the environment that is that's where your risk is going to be. Those those animals are not going to survive. They won't be able to raise the young to uh, because because the demand on them is so high. They also have a very distinctive sound at nighttime, and I'm wondering if there's any veterinarians here who can. Could impersonate. Adrian is the only one who's heard them well enough. Can I, can I just, I, like, I can't quite remember what they sound like. Could you kind of make that sound? Go, baby, go. Yeah, good. Ah! 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 <laughs> yeah. What does the lesser sound like? Squeaky. It's yeah, yeah, more so like a squeak. Yeah. Squeak, 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 squeak. Squeak, squeak, After all those bush baby sounds, the conversation basically went in a whole other direction. <laughs> but many thanks to veterinarians Christine and Roy, Adrian and Ashley, and thanks to my husband, Glenn. And if you want to learn more about how pets are affected by climate change and how you can protect your pets, check out episode 13 of Citizens Climate Radio. Now it is time for The Art House and another installment of the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club. Every few months, Krista Heiser shares with us her thoughts about climate-themed literature. I recently reread Solar by Ian McEwan, which came out in 2010. And these are some of my thoughts 12 years later. Back in 2010, before cli-fi was really a thing, I found the protagonist of the novel, Dr. Michael Beard, to be so distasteful, I was literally frowning with disgust while reading the book. I could barely finish it. Let's just say Michael Beard is the type of person who's in the right time and place to benefit from things. He was awarded a Nobel Prize in physics early in his career, and he coasts through an academic life of speeches and conferences and more than a few wives, eventually becoming director of a Center for Renewable Energy in England. McEwen's use of the omniscient narrator causes us to think Beard's thoughts. I think that's why I found it so distasteful. I felt in this novel my own complicity in the climate crisis, the bizarre measures of success that pervade academia, conferences and dossiers and rubrics, academia which rewards shallow territory and staying in your lane, which reinforces the disciplinary boundaries that prevent us from shifting our paradigm. Here's a passage from McEwen's novel. Beard was not wholly skeptical about climate change, it was one in a list of issues of looming sorrows that made up the background to the news, and he read about it, vaguely deplored it, and expected governments to meet and take action. Of course he knew that a molecule of carbon dioxide absorbed energy in the infrared range, and that humankind was putting these molecules into the atmosphere in significant quantities. But he himself had other things to think about. My rereading of Solar was prompted by a recent peer-reviewed publication in the journal Energies, written by Megan Siebert and William Rees. The article is called Through the Eye of a Needle, an Eco-Heterodox Perspective on the Renewable Energy Transition. 
Siebert and Reese offer, I'm going to quote from the article abstract here, they offer a tripartite analysis that recharacterizes the climate crisis within its broader context of ecological overshoot, highlights numerous collectively fatal problems with so-called renewable energy technologies, and suggests alternative solutions that entail a contraction of the human enterprise. End quote. In other words, solar panels and electric cars are not going to stop the climate crisis. Back in 2019, when I was working for the University Office of Sustainability, I was super psyched to visit our first net zero campus. We actually have a state law that says our university will be net zero by 2035. It's a huge investment, and it's something everybody wants, including myself. I wanted to celebrate that moment and ignore all the sticky parts, just like Michael Beard would have wanted. Later that day, after the photo ops, I observed a class in systems thinking, where the students were interrogating the campus achievement. What about the steel? What about the concrete? What about obsolescence of all those panels 30 years from now? Those students were on to what Siebert and Reese are talking about, which is to say, overshoot. I was fortunate to talk with Megan Siebert, and she emphasized that overshoot, not carbon dioxide, is the real problem that people don't like to look at. I told Megan how much my students love renewable energy. It's so awesome, and it's so great for the economy. I've read literally hundreds of papers that conclude with a hope trope about solar energy. We all want what Michael Beard found, a magical, idealistic solution, and never mind the collateral damage. I found the Energies article to be important and devastating. I asked Megan, how do you share this article with people? They need to believe in something. And she said, we desperately need to hear the truth, and it doesn't do anyone any good to sidestep it. The idea of the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club is to explore how climate-themed literature can help us face hard truths about the climate crisis. Having let another decade slip through our fingers, I find myself appreciating the novel Solar more than I did before. Ten years later, I don't loathe Michael Beard. Aren't we all just like him? Grasping at straws? Covering our tracks? Making the best of it? Accompanied by the uncomfortable ideas of Siebert and Reese, Solar, the novel, might help us open more conversations about solar, the industry. The truth is, overshoot. The truth is, we can't sustain our consumption patterns. Siebert and Reese conclude that it may be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for humanity to shift its prevailing paradigm and embark on a planned, voluntary descent from a state of overshoot to a steady-state harmonic relationship with the ecosphere in just a decade or two. In other words, in addition to working the solutions, we need to be addressing the paradigm and our mindset. And that's what books are for. You can read a written version of Krista's essay at the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club for Sustainability and Higher Education. It's found on medium.com. In our show notes, I also have a link to Seibert and Reese's essay, Through the Eye of a Needle. Look for the blog at citizensclimatelobby.org. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org.
Before we end this episode, we have good news from out of the U.S. state of Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Dick Jones. I'm in State College, Pennsylvania. The State College, Pennsylvania chapter of CCL is pleased to report that State College Borough Council has unanimously approved a resolution calling on Congress to pass the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. That happened on March 7th. And with this action, I think that State College, which is the town where Penn State University is located, becomes the 160th local government to endorse the EICDA. We want to thank the council, especially Council President Jesse Barlow and Mayor Ezra Names, two stalwart friends of the climate, for helping to shepherd this resolution to a successful vote. Many of the major cities in Pennsylvania have endorsed the EICDA, including Allentown, Bethlehem, Bloomsburg, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, York, and now State College. Let's keep the momentum going. Thank you, Dick, and the folks in State College, Pennsylvania. If you have good news you want to share on the show, please email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Oh, and we also have a new listener voicemail line. That number is 619-512-9646. Plus one if you're calling from outside the USA. That number again, 619-512-9646. Feel free to share your good news, your thoughts about the podcast, or just say hi. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 71 of Citizens Climate Radio. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peter Santoscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt, Paul Toronto, Flannery Winchester, Katie Zarkreski, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Para. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education.